This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. Muck Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with Muck Delivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Switching and saving with Geico is easy. So you're free to ponder life's big questions. Like, why do people say it goes without saying and then say it anyway? I mean, if it really goes without saying, you should instead not say it and just give a knowing look? Well, folks, it goes without saying. Uh, what does? The thing that I'm not going to say. Okay. Switch and save with Geico. It's easier than you think. You're listening to the West MY podcast with Dave and X. Oi, oi. Hello and welcome to the West Hamway Podcast with myself Dave Walker and serial YTK blogger XWHU employee. On last week's show we gave you our most underrated West Ham 11 in Premier League history and tonight we are following that podcast by interviewing a man who we selected as the most underrated player from that 11. Peter Butler joins us to talk about his time at West Ham and answer questions from our collective followers on social media. That's all coming up on tonight's show. In the early 90s, Peter Butler joined West Ham from Southend, and now he joins the West Ham Way from Liberia. Pete, it's an absolute pleasure having you on. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm in good form. I'm all right. Enjoying the um, Liberian weather? Uh, it's hot, it's steaming at the moment, uh, but we're just actually coming into rainy season, so uh, you get sort of six-month hot, six-month you know, heavy downpours here. So I've sort of came last August when it was... Uh, you know, bouncing down, but I've been here also while it's like being cracking the flags. It's been red up, so yeah, be welcome to you know to, to rainy season. That's interesting. I didn't realise that it was six months on, six months off. Yeah, see, yeah, it's not like we get you know like four you know four seasons you know in one day in Yorkshire. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we, yeah, it's, it's uh, you get six months you know hot season, six months rainy season. So yeah, it's quite unique. Yeah, well, at least for six months of the year, if you get homesick, that helps to see a bit of rain outside the window. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm used to it living on edge of Panines, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Pete, let's start by you taking us back to 1992 
when you joined West Ham from South End for I think it was a reported fee of around 170 grand. Tell us how the move came about. A uh, bit of a strange one, really. I'd it was sort of taking you back. I went to I went to Huddersfield on loan. I had a bad knee injury. I had a rupture of patella tendon and uh, at South End, and we were in the Championship at time. You know, at the old First Division. Um, I'd worked under David Webb for a long time, and you know he was a good guy. And to be honest with you, he got the best out of a, a rabble, if I'm being honest with you. A uh, lot of lads from East London, like ex-Millwall lads, um, and he brought a group of lads together, and uh, we had a lot of success, back-to-back promotions, and sort of played West Ham in a pre-season game, and I'd done quite well. Um, David Webb said to me, my contract was coming up. He just said, listen, if you get an opportunity to go somewhere bigger and better, he goes, I'm not going to turn it down. And I got a phone call out of blue and the guy just said, listen, will you ring this number? And it would picked up phone. It was Billy Bonds on the other end of the phone. You know, and when he, you know, you know what he's like with his big, deep, gruff voice. And he just said to me, uh, he, said, uh, he said, do you fancy coming down to do in a couple of weeks training? And I, uh, I said, all right, yeah. I think it was 91, somewhere like that. I can't remember. And so I went down for a, I went down for uh, for two weeks, and it was quite, you know, it was a little bit of like a fish out of water, really. I'm looking around, I'm sat next to Clive Allen, and a lot of him knew I actually was because I played against him in pre-season, and obviously made a bit of an impression. And and uh, we were training at I think it was Redbridge running track, and mm-hmm. and I can run. I might not be the best player in the world, but I could run. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, I, I went there. I, I didn't. I only had a week. He, he pulled me at one side. He goes, "Do you fancy playing for West Ham?" I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." And he made me an offer. He gave me a three-year contract. And really, I, um, he was great. I mean, it were Harry who Harry had been the one who'd laid the foundations because we played Bournemouth in this sort of penultimate game of the uh, season. Huddersfield, mm. uh, they had to win at Dean Court, and we went down there and we we smashed them and. Uh, I think it ended up a draw, but we sort of curtailed their sort of aspirations of getting it playoffs. And um, and I, Huddersfield, uh, I weren't allowed to play in the in the semi-final playoffs, but uh, I'd done enough in that game. Harry wanted me, and he sort of took me under his wing. And that that were it really. So how so how important was um, Billy Bonds and Harry Redknapp to the decision? You know, were they key in the in you moving there, or was there other factors as well? Yeah, they were. They, they, they'd asked for a fortune at Southend. I forget what they'd asked for at the time. I think I ended up going for about 200 grand and they, they wanted 600 and it went to a tri- tribunal uh, and a new couple of guys on the tribunal and they said, oh, don't worry. He said, it's really the, what they've offered you at Southend doesn't stack in the favour. And it was a conditional tribunal. And, you know, thankfully it all went ahead and, uh, yeah, they were they were both very, you know, sort of instrumental in getting me there. And uh, Billy's, you know, Great guy, you know, really wanted to make it happen, and so did Harry. And uh, uh, it was great because, it, I mean, you don't see that really now. You look young lads getting an opportunity to, I was 24, 25 at the time, getting an opportunity to move from sort of, well, it weren't so much lower divisions. It would, would come from sort of the depths, uh, and Webby had sort of dragged us up by this, you know, you know, the by his socks, really, and uh, he'd mould us into some, you know, into a decent team. And we had some really good players there at Southend. A lot of lads who went on and played uh, top flight. Mm, mm. And you mentioned earlier, you know, sitting next to the lights of Clive Allen and, uh, and and the fact that you'd played against a number of these players before, so they might have been familiar with you. Was there any kind of instant friendships that you struck up in the dressing room? Any outstanding characters that, that kind of lay in your memory from that time? 
daft as it sounds, majority of the lads had joined West Ham at the time when they were in they were in turmoil. Uh, yeah. A lot of big time Charlies there. A lot of lads really were just picking up the money and didn't care about the club. And you know, there's me, like you know, a lad from sort of West Yorkshire, Halifax, going in there thinking. But likes of Clive and Martin and Bish, Trevor Morley, you know, Alvin and that, they were just really humble characters. And uh, Clive straight away said, "Pete, get your towel. I'll take you to trail. I'll take you to, to Redbridge running track." And I got in the car with them and. Uh, I felt at home. I felt at home from day one. It was it's a strange feeling. It, I mean, you, you you lads obviously know West Ham as well as I do. And I had sort of two and a half going on three seasons, you know, wonderful time, years there. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously I left because of, you know, of the reasons. But um, it was a club which were going through, it was a very, very critical part of their sort of history. And they were going through, you know, a dreadful time. They'd come off the back of the Bond scheme, and then obviously the team had got relegated, and uh, it were it were in dangerous slipping into oblivion if they uh, if they didn't get the right characters in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's funny actually. When you said, um, you know, Clive told you to get your towel, I thought he was going to have a shower together. I was thinking, oh, I didn't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's probably probably an unfair question, Pete, but. When you talk about the big time Charlies and the people that were there just to pick up a wage packet, can you can you tell us who they were, or is that a bit unfair? I think that would be unfair. I don't think you have to be a nuclear physicist to work that one out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair honest, comment. Good to answer. be honest, mate, Dave struggles with five plus five, so uh, <laughs> he's got no chance. But, uh, <laughs> I certainly couldn't spell nuclear physicist, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you made your debut, and it was actually in familiar surroundings back in Yorkshire, but um, at Barnsley. Um, we think we won the game 1-0. What was it like to finally make your debut for the club? Uh, well, I, I didn't play a lot of pre-season games because I had to go through this conditional tribunal, and I think I played a game, I think we played at Ipswich in a pre-season game. Uh, and I knew Harry wanted me in there and um, and basically I I knew I had an opportunity they'd put a lot of faith in me at the club and, um, and when he told me I was playing I got there and there were 5,000 West Ham fans behind the goal and I'm like oh no <laughs> no real pressure but um, yeah it were uh, just a brilliant a, a, a great day I'll never forget it we played really well and you know I'm not saying we played the best football because we were There'd been a team thrown together. We had lads like, you know, being brought in such as Matty Holmes, you know, Keith Rowland, um, lads who'd come in from sort of lower leagues. Um, um, and, it, and it were a great opportunity. It, it, it were um, and sort of, daft as it sounds, a bit of a new broom sweep, clean, sweeps clean. Let me just turn this TV off because electric's come back on. Hang on. Maybe you need to put another shilling in the meter. Hey, it's like that, seriously. <laughs> hey, but a simple life's a beautiful life. And, and it just. And it, and it just. Um, Pete, your first goal from memory was a header in a 2-1 win over Peterborough. Tell us what it was like to get your first goal. And um, you scored three goals for West Ham, I believe. What was your favourite of the three? Uh, I think I scored against Peterborough, Brentford and Coventry, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, my claim to fame's always been I've scored it, played at every level. You know, the old third, you know, the old fourth, second, uh, fourth, third, second, and first, which is now the Premier League, you know, Championship yep. one and two. 
So I played at every level. I scored at every level. But I didn't score many goals. But uh, <laughs> no, I suppose the better obviously was when I scored against Coventry uh, at Upton Park. So um, yeah, I was never renowned for scoring goals. You know, I was probably more of a provider and sort of every team needs a water carrier, and I were probably that one. And uh, you know, I'd like to think that I contributed to to my time at West Ham in a positive manner. I, Probably played about 75 games, 80, I don't know, something like that. Uh, but, you know, there's an old saying, you know, it's good to look back, but don't look back and stare. And I've never sort of, like, clung on to things. I've moved on with life when I've done different things. So uh, I'm not really one to sort of, you know, sort of dip into memory lane. I'm sort of like a bit of a here and now person. And, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I, you know, when I go back home, I get an opportunity. I people often sort of, you know, ask me if I'm, am I going to Woodersfield to watch? Or am I going to Ellen Road Leeds? And I, I don't bother. Mm. I mean, we are we are going to actually ask you to dip back into memory lane though, and uh, talk about the um, game against Cambridge at the end of the season. You know, it'd been a really, really um, like eventful season. Got down to the last game. And then we won that game 2-0, I believe, Clive Allen um, scoring with minutes to go. And you played in that game. What what was it like to be a part of that? And then was it the pitch invasions that came after? Well, it, it's funny because we were going, we'd had a bit of a wobble towards end of the season. Uh, I think we'd lost at Notts County, if I'm right in saying. Uh, we didn't have a good Easter. Um, and it were on the back of, I think we'd played at Sunderland, um, when Bo- uh, Billy Bonds, had, uh, sorry, Bobby Bobby Moore had passed away, and uh, I remember Billy Bonds saying to us, you know, it's imperative that we have a good Easter, and we, we didn't have a good Easter. And uh, I know, if we forget the last three games we had, uh, we played, um, I think it was, uh, we'd had Swindon's, the penultimate game, and then we went, we had that Cambridge game. Um, but we, I think we did, it, it was it was a real pressure game, and um, I remember it, you know, vividly. Dixie, you know, was sort of instrumental as he always, as he always was. And uh, Clive, typical, you know, two yards out, you know, you know, pokes one in. But I just sort of, I look back at that. It was, it, it could have been like the, the proverbial party poop, you know, began skin, you know, last game at season, my old club, Cambridge, um, coming and doing a job on us. But I thought. I thought the game which really set us up was the was the Swindon game. That was yeah. the game because I, I thought we we were outstanding against Swindon. We played ever so well, and it were a real pressure game because if we wouldn't have won that, would have been would have been really like staring down the barrel of a gun. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And I mean, it was a it was such an iconic game as well. That one against uh, well, obviously Swindon, and then the Cambridge one with all the pitch invasions, and uh, it was just seemed like we'd come from, like you said earlier, that real low to actually getting to a decent point in our history. I think all those emotions kind of spilled out from from the fans in that game. Yeah, it was. It was an amazing day. It really was. I mean, I remember just driving up the Barking Road with Steve Jones and. Uh, I remember saying to Jonah, you know, you know, we're not going to change anything we do. You know, we'll stop at the cafe, have a cup of tea, do what we normally do, uh, keep things simple. You know, you get sometimes lads, you know, do stupid things, put a pair of new boots on, dye their hair, new hairstyle. I just said, let's keep it, you know, let's be pragmatic about it and just get, get the job done because this won't be an easy game. And, you know, we we did we did the business. We it weren't it weren't a vintage West Ham display, but I think over that season there were a lot of results which weren't vintage, 
which were untypical of West Ham, where we ground results out. And I think we grew as a group. Um, you know, and to be around those lads, you know, I could tell you a million stories about some of the characters in that dressing room. And um, they were a fantastic group of lads, you know, from Alvin Martin to Ian Bishop to Trevor Morley to Kevin Keane, etc. They were a special bunch of people. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an amazing day and it was an amazing season. I think you might have just answered my next question. But I was going to ask you about what made us so successful that season. Do you put it down to team camaraderie in a good dressing room? Do you know, it's a funny story because when I went there, Harry and Bill took me to one side one day and they said, and I'd been renowned sort of, you know, being involved in teams which weren't the best teams, but we got the best out of what we had. Uh, you know, so whatever toolbox, you know, we had, you know, we got, you know, we, we used, you know, used everything we, we, we had. And he came to me, he said, how do, you, how, do you, how do you regenerate that northern sort of camaraderie that you get? And I went, how do you mean? He said, well, you old northern lads. He said, always seem to have a great team spirit. And I said, well, we don't have a lot to shout, we don't have a lot to shout about, do we? So I said, I'll tell you what, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. So I organised a meat raffle. No word of a lie. I had a mate, I had a mate called Trevor down in South End. And what I used to do is, I used to get like 50 quids worth of me every match day. So no word of a lie, that promotion season. I used to get a, um, I used to get a, a, a box of meat. It'd last you about a month. And I'm either a bottle of Jack Daniels or a case of beer. You couldn't do with that now. And it was five for a strip, two, two, two strips for a tenner. And then we, used to have a, we used to have a meat raffle on match day. No word of a lie. Billy Bonds, Harry Redknapp, everybody had to chip in. And it were... Uh, it just brought us back down to basics. Some lads didn't like it because they thought they were a little bit above that, but everybody grew into it. I always remember we had Christmas, we had a Christmas day, we had five grand, five grand in a kitty, which was a lot of money then. Might mm-hmm. not be now, was then. And we all went in fancy dress, bad taste, clothes in Piccadilly on a bus, all dressed up, and everyone's looking as we're crawling through Piccadilly. And I'd, I'd organised all this with like uh, Mike Marsh and David Burroughs and Ian Bishop. And Ian Bishop... No word of a lie. There's a there's a guy who's a you know he was he'd fallen on tough times down and out in in the doorway. So Bish said, "Stop the bus. Give me so he said, Pete, give me a tenner and a, and a can of beer." So he ran across the road. So he runs across the road and uh, he gives he gives this down and out. This guy had fallen on tough times a tenner and a can of beer. Well, he obviously thought he was like Jesus. You know what I mean? What's going on here? Chris will be long here. So then so, so then Bish. Had an expensive pair of shoes on, so then he starts taking his shoes off in the middle of Piccadilly, in on the high street, to give this 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 guy, this down and out guy, this pair of shoes. So he went, "Here, yeah, mate, take my shoes, give me yours." And Trap looked at him and went, "Fuck off." <laughs> <laughs> so that, that 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 was the team spirit and the camaraderie that we developed there, and it really really set us in in good shape. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to ask you, Pete, how did you find the dynamic between Harry Redknapp and Billy Bonds at the time? Because obviously every West Ham fan knows it didn't end well between them. But what were they like to work for as a pair? They were great. I mean, they were good to me. Uh, Billy really, I got on really well with Billy and I got on really well with Harry. Harry loved us because I had that, that, that lower league mentality, uh, you know, one in all in. You know, you couldn't have like, you couldn't have like, people thinking they were better than the group, you know what I mean? Everybody had to conform and Harry was like instrumental and Billy was. Billy wouldn't come, Billy had come now and again to races, but 
Um, and I'm not really a betting man. I've never have been, but I, did, I enjoy going to races because, you know, it was, it was a bit different. And uh, um, it's not often you get a lad from Halifax going to Cheltenham Racecourse and drinking champagne in Martin mm-hmm. Pipe's tent. So I took the, I took, <laughs> made the most of it. But no, it, they were great. They were really good. And But you could see... You could see the roles reversed, I mean, and I don't really want to go into it too much because I respect both guys. Mm. Billy's a diamond. He's just a lovely, lovely man. They don't make him like anymore. Harry Harry was always looking to jump on a faster train, if you understand what I'm saying, and uh, and he did. Mm. As, as, you know, but but he's, he was, he's been extremely successful, and I've got a lot of respect for both guys. Mm. Well, it was obviously they then took us into our first ever uh, season, the Premier League. Um, how excited were you and the players to be involved in this new league and with its, you know, Sky coverage and increased in mo- uh, increase in money? Did it did it affect you guys, or were you, or were you not that bothered by that? Um, you know, I'm I, I looking back. We I don't think we're really phased by it. It's what you've got to remember is, and I've played in the championship level a lot, the championship level is a lot more difficult to play in than the, in the Premier League, believe, honestly. Uh, you know, the quality level in the Premier League is higher, for sure. But getting out of that championship level uh, is really, really difficult. Um, sustaining your position within the Premier League, if you, if you lose one, you might lose two, three, four, five. It's, it's a bit of a confidence thing, and... Uh, I I always felt we had we didn't you know we had a team which could hold their own but we needed obviously we needed we needed, we needed better players better quality uh, and that's when they went out and started bringing in people like Marsha, Bugsy, Lee Chappie, Lee Chapman came in uh, you know Dale Gordon came in uh, so we you know it gave us an opportunity to sort of strengthen the squad, but at the same time, not ripping apart that sort of like team spirit and that camaraderie that we'd actually built up with it, you know, over that like, like last season. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you mentioned a couple of names there, a couple being uh, Mike Marsh and David Burrows, who of course came in for Julian Dix. And that was a massive, massive decision for the club to sell Julian. Um, I mean, no one needs to know, just how important Julian was to, to West Ham across his entire playing career for us. Uh, I mean, how did the players respond to that? Because you said yourself, you know, looking at that season that we got promoted, he was instrumental. That was the word that you used. So to lose that from the dressing room, despite getting two players in, how did that go down? Uh, I think it was inevitable. It was going to happen. Dixie was always going to go on to something bigger and better. Uh, um, maybe he thought he was bigger than West Ham. Um I remember we played at Ellen Road uh, one night and I think we got a beat 1-0. And we didn't play well at all. We either drew or I can't remember. I forget now, it seems it's a long time ago. Uh, but Gordon Strachan had gave Dixie a run around 35, whatever he was at the time, and took him to the cleaners. And him and Billy had words, and I was remembering they had words in the dressing room. And, uh, you know, it was nothing out of turn. It was just sort of the way things happen and... I could see and everybody could see his time was coming to an end. It was going to be one or the other. And it weren't Billy that were leaving. It was obviously going to be Dixie. But I got on really well with Dixie. I was I really rated him. I had a lot of respect for him. When you broke down all that bravado and, and all that sort of like bolshiness, uh, he was really a very, a very, not only a very good player, but he also had a good heart. He was, a, 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 you know, a good human being. And I, I've, I've always got on well with him since. Yeah, it's, it's really... 
You're going to say what I'm going to say, XRB. Oh, well, go on, go ahead, mate. Was, can you go ahead? Well, I, I don't know if we were going to say the same thing, but it's interesting to hear you say that because me and X obviously have, have the uh, privilege of dealing with a number of X pros and we've dealt with so many over the years with this the podcast and the say. event. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and, and I think maybe I speak for you, X, when I say this. Uh, it, it probably took me meeting Dixie, who was a hero of mine growing up as it was X's, probably four or five times before I, I really realised if I even liked him. Because for that very reason, Pete, you're saying, you know, there, there is a bit of a, a kind of bolshiness to him and a bit of a hard exterior. But after that, I've dealt with him so many times more. And he is one of the most grounded, down-to-earth, loveliest people you'll ever wish to meet with a massive, massive heart. So it's interesting to hear you say that. And it isn't just me and X that, that kind of had to, to kind of climb that mountain with him in the uh, in the initial stages of our relationship, you know? No, it can be hard work uh, if you don't know him. Um, a lot mm. of people have said it to in the past, and I, you know, I, I think if you if you let people in any walk of life walk all over you or, or try and you know put you down, you got to earn your respect, aren't you? And, mm. um, there's me coming in from like Southend, you know, who's Southend? Southend to me was quite a special club because I had such great memories there and played a lot of football for them. Uh, and then the next stop for me was either going to be like a West Ham or or some. Well, I, it was always rumoured I was going to go to West Ham or Spurs and I ended up going to West Ham and, and I remember Dixie was linked to go to, to Spurs at the time uh, but, he did, but he didn't, he stayed and I I got on very well with him and uh, he is, he is he's, 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 he's a good lad once you get to know him He is, without a doubt, without it's a doubt it's funny because I was actually going to say exactly what Dave said there, almost word for word. And, I, and I'm mm. pleased for both of you that you both ended up at West Ham and not Tottenham. I think you got a, a lucky escape there. But, but um, another player that kind of got a bit of like a, had a strange reputation with the West Ham fans and was brought in at that time was um, Lee Chapman. Now, obviously, he was brought in at the same time as Burrows and Marsh and he scored a fair few goals for us. But the fans kind of never really took to him and got on his back. Could you understand why that was? I mean, it might be difficult for you to say, but it always seemed a bit harsh at the time. You know, I know Chappie from from. I'm I'm, I'm obviously I was I grew up I grew up, brought up as a Leeds fan, and uh, when Leeds won the league, and uh, he did an amazing job playing a certain style of football that Howard Wilkinson, uh, you know, had brought in. You know, Sheffield Wednesday. He um, you know went to uh, to Leeds and. You know, very direct, back to front, played to his strengths. And we couldn't play that way at West Ham. And and I, everybody thought it's going to take a while for him to adjust. But I tell you what, what a great guy. What a really nice, really nice, genuine person he was. And uh, very helpful, knew his strengths, knew knew what he could do, what he couldn't do. The secret was, is get the ball in the final third of the field and get balls in the box as quick as you can because he'll get on the end of things. He was brave. Uh, he used to make good runs. He was a type of lad, you know what I mean? Ball would, you know, bounce off the back of his ass or his head and go in net, you know, and you think, mm-hmm. has he done that? Um, was that by luck or by, you know, or good, you know, good, mm-hmm. good, or, or good mm-hmm. fortune? You, do, you, you never know, but if you look back mm-hmm. in his career, his goal-scoring record's good. Yeah, exactly. It does, it does speak for itself. Um, I mean, you mentioned Tottenham there. 
you'll know, Pete, you know, there's no love lost between West Ham and Tottenham. We fucking hate them. Absolutely hate them. I, for one, fucking detest them. But, you know, let's not go there before I get carried away. Uh, we, we we beat Tottenham 4-1 at White Hart Lane. You was part of that game. What was it like to be part of? Because I believe you, didn't you come off injured? And I Steve did, yeah. came on and then obviously rewrote history in that respect. What was it like to be part of that game? Well, I shouldn't have played that game. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I, I didn't play again that season. Uh, it, it was like I think it was Easter Monday or, or, or the day or the game before, and I I shouldn't have played. I'd spent the whole week on the treatment table with John Green, and I ended up the day before I was in Tom McAuliffe, the orthopedic surgeon, club surgeon at the time. I was getting like just syringes and syringes of fluid being drawn off my knee, and Billy and Harry came to me and just said, "Listen, just go out and give us half an hour, set the tone." Get right in the faces because we've got enough subs. Just go and do a job and last as long as you can. If you get to half time, it's a bonus. And I thought, no, I can't. Anyhow, I came in morning at game and had a load of like Voltaren and I ended up playing the game. I played for half an hour. We got amongst them and I knew full well I weren't going to last. And I came off and I think we beat him. Were it 5 1? Were it 5 1 or 4 1? Were it 4 1? 4 1, yeah. And um, I looked back and, you know, I sort of probably sacrificed my season to, to sort of like, It'd be part of that, that game, but I'll never forget it because loads of people always remind me of it and just say, oh, can you remember when West Ham like hammered Spurs at White Island? It was a special day and a great atmosphere. And, and I think Jonah, Jonah came on and did really well and he, he set himself up for a good career. Maybe not so much at West Ham because he didn't play that much after that, but he ended up going doing very well for himself. And again, a lovely lad, really nice guy. Yeah, I mean, it was such a great game. I was actually at that game. I can still remember the feelings so so clearly. It was great. Um, another another sort of iconic game that season was uh, the FA Cup. We got to the quarterfinals and we um, played Luton and uh, came unstuck. We got a draw, draw at Upton Park and then came unstuck at Kenilworth Road. Um, how gutted were the players about that? Because it felt like it might be our year that year. It's a funny game because I remember it really well because I didn't play the first game because uh, I was coming back from a knee injury. Um, my wife had just we just had his first child in South South End uh, South End General, we, uh, and uh, or Rock, in Rock, down in Rochford, and uh, I didn't I weren't expected to play. And Billy and Harry said, "You you fit to play? Can you do a job?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd love to play, but you know I don't, I'm not sure I'm ready." And he went. And I trained, I trained, and I, pl- I ended up playing. I remember setting up two goals as well, one for Ian Bishop, and I think the other one might be Martin Allen. Um, I, can't, I can't remember it vividly, but we lost 3-2, and it was the worst feeling ever, because I always remember the semi-finals were going to be the first time the semi-finals were going to be played at Wembley. Yeah. Mm. And uh, remember get and we play, and we actually we actually played played well on a on a real mud bath. But defended atrociously, and it were a game we really should never have lost, and we shot ourselves in the foot. But I really felt sorry because the fans had travelled there in numbers, and as they always did, because they were just great supporters away from home and at home. And I look back at it, and it would miss. Op- I just put it down; it's like a missed opportunity. Yeah, that's what it felt like. And obviously, poor Steve Potts was at fault for the, the final goal, and of all the players like, to be at fault at that time because he was so on form. It was just a just really, really a sad day, really, because it did feel like it was a wasted opportunity. Yeah, it was. I mean, Potts he was Mister Dependable. You know, he mm. rarely let you down. Uh, you know, I think he he went to stand on the ball. I think it went under that's his leg. Right, yeah. 
from what I gather, from what I remember, and uh, sort of look back and I think myself, you know, of all people, uh, put your boot through it. Uh, but, you know, we, I look back in, in sort of that, that era and over that season, and we, we didn't have a lot of foreign players. We had a lot of local lads, and it were at the time where foreign players were coming into the game. And, you know, sadly, you know, if, you know, in this sort of day and age, you know, people like Keith Rowland, myself, uh, Matty Holmes, um, Jonas, wouldn't have got an opportunity to play for West Ham in this modern day era because the game has just changed. Uh, I think sometimes for for the worse, not for the good. Mm, definitely. Mm. Uh, well, that season we finished 13th from memory, uh, which was a really good achievement. But in the summer... Billy Bonds was replaced by Harry Redknapp. Now, I know, obviously, you don't want to go into too much of the detail um, behind the, the, the feud that took place. But in terms of the news that came through to the players that that had happened, politics aside, how did the players feel about that? Oh, they were happy about it. It were a, it were a bit of a, um, how can I put it, a bit of a bombshell, really, to everybody. And was it? You knew something was going to happen. Something had to give. Uh, Billy was a man of principle, uh, man of morals, and uh, set high standards. And then, but obviously, Harry was good friends with Peter Story. And uh, looking back, it was always going to be a situation where there was going to be change. And um, you know, Harry brought in his brother-in-law, Frank Lampard Senior, um, who who couldn't, couldn't coach to save his life, uh, and he just really? used. Oh, he couldn't coach to save his life. You know what I mean? It was like, but um, and I got on, re- I, I, and I got on all right with him outside the game. He was an, an affable guy. And he, he came in, and you know, Frank Frank Lampard Senior trying to, and I got on really well with Frank Junior. Uh, Frank was a nice, really nice kid, and you, and you could see things were changing, and they weren't changing for the good. And I just thought, you know what, you know, you know. There's going to be a, a big sort of makeover here. You could see it coming, and um, you know a lot of people left and moved on. And you know I was one of those eventually who left, but I left for different reasons. But uh, you could see it, and you know to replace an iconic figure like Billy, uh, it were going to, you know, there were going to be a lot of questions asked. And um, you know, well, I won't, I won't. One, I was very, very thankful, and you know, and, and, and respectful of the opportunity that he actually gave me. Mm, mm. And you sort of, you mentioned it there about obviously you left. I think you played five games for Redknapp and then you you moved on to Notts County. Um, what were the circumstances? I, I mean, I read up a bit on it, and you know there seems to be a few family things. Was it just that that made you leave, or was it the change, or was there any other factors? Um, no, the truth were we uh, we were um, we were playing sort of. I left sort of similar time when when B- Billy was was. Was leaving. I always remember we were playing at, uh, at Stamford Bridge on a Sunday, and so we played Leeds on the on the week before, uh, and we'd drawn at Upton Park, and my mum was terminally ill, and they gave her three months to live, so I had to play that game, and I remember running around chasing like Gary Speed, David Batty, Gordon Strachan, and Gary McAllister, and my mind was elsewhere, and mm. I had to go home. I had to go home and tell my mum that she weren't going, you know, working with us. It was like a horrible part of sort of my life. And um, and then within seven weeks she'd she'd passed away. So and we I remember we were, after that we were playing Chelsea at Stamford Bridge on a Sunday, and she took the turn for the worst. And um, I went home 
and she passed away. I never played the game. Billy were great about it and Harry. And I never went back to West Ham. And to this day, I never went back. I went back once when I was with Grimsby. And, um, you know, I look back at that time and I, I wish, in many respects, I would have stayed a little bit longer. But, you know, the writing were on the wall and I wanted to be a little bit closer to my family. And, you know, looking back, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Maybe I shouldn't have done it, but I did it for family reasons. And, you you know, you can't, you can't rewrite, rewrite history, can you? No, you, no, you can't. No, you're absolutely right. Family's more important than football. And uh, yeah, sorry to hear about your mum, Pete. That's life. Um, life. Life things happen, don't they? They do, mate. They do. Yeah, I know. Life can be cruel sometimes. Uh, after you finished your playing career, you then managed in Asia and Africa. Uh, and, and you still are managing in, in Africa. Why have you chosen to develop your career there, uh, having started at sunny Halifax? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I went to West Brom and I had two and a half great years at West Brom. It was West West Brom was probably a little bit similar to West Ham. It's quite a similar club, crazy as it sounds. Great fans, very vociferous and very passionate. Uh, and um, I, I, Dennis Smith was. I remember like driving across Barton Bridge in Manchester and I fell asleep at wheel and my wife had just had a baby and uh, another baby and I. Uh, I just went in to see Dennis Smith the next morning in West Brom because I was travelling from Halifax to West Brom, which took about three hours every day there and back. I know to get there was like over two hours, two and a half hours. And um, I'd sort of bought a house back in Halifax, well, just outside Halifax, in between Huddersfield, Halifax. And I just decided I wanted to get into, get back into coaching. I was working with Ray Arford, and Ray Arford, who was, bless his soul, is dead now, great guy, ex-Fulham guy, Luton. And he said to me, he goes, one day you'll be a coach, Peter. I says, why is that? Because you ask too many fucking questions. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I says to him, I'd like to get into coaching. He said, listen, if I go somewhere, he said, I will try and bring you with me. He goes, and anyway, he went to QPR and he, he couldn't get me out of there. And he ended up taking Vinnie Jones there as a, as a player coach, which is, weren't going to really happen. But And I just had an opportunity to go to... As a, as a player coach to Halifax and it was just like a big drop in money, a big drop in standard and I thought right now's the time I'll take it, take, bite the bullet and it was the best thing I did, I had, it was a bit of a baptism of fire but I went to Halifax and then I did my coaching licences there, uh, went through the system and then I had an opportunity to go to Australia and that's where the sort of like the Phileas Fogg, you know, have boots will travel sort of came, came about and that's when I started my uh, my uh, my sort of coaching experiences. I mean, we, we've look, I've looked at your career coaching wise on Wikipedia, and I mean, I I can't even remember or name the teams uh, that that you've managed or coached because there's quite a few that are across Asia, and obviously you've got the national teams down in Africa. I mean, how hard was it for you to sort of like not just from a coaching point of view, but from a personal point of view? You know, you said you had your family with you and things like that. Is it hard to sort of spend that many years away coaching in different countries, or is it something you feel sort of blessed that you've been able to? Well, I went to Australia first and I ran an academy. They brought me out of retirement. I'll never forget it. I went there and the two East End lads, one called, I called Trevor Morgan, who's from, uh, I think he was from Ilford, Trevor. A uh, great guy, lovely guy, played for Exeter and Bolton. And then I called Stevie Neville. Uh, they're all like East, East End boys. And I ended up like uh, going there to coach their academy and and one of me to play, come out of retirement. I just retired from playing because my knee went knackered. I'd had seven operations on one and one on the other. And I, I said, no, I don't want to play. I said, I'll, and he went, no, no, I want you to play just this season. A team called Sorrento in 
north of Perth. And I'd just gone out there on a, on a three-year sporting visa and I thought I didn't want to play. Anyhow, we played. And uh, he, he dragged me out and he persuaded me to come out and play for a year. We won the league, believe it or not. We won the league. And I played following season a little bit and then I just got fed up of being abused by Croatians and Yugoslavs, you know what I mean? And you know, calling me a pommy bastard and spitting on me. And I just thought I'd had enough of this. I thought I don't need it. So I just concentrated on coaching and the academy really flourished and did really well. And, and then I got headed for a job to go as technical director in Sabering, uh, East Malaysia. So Australia was a great sounding board for me, but I weren't a big lover of it. But it gave me the platform to kick on and move into Asia. And um, I speak Indonesian. I speak more or less fluent Indonesian. Uh, wow. And I, I learned the language and I threw myself into it. I ended up working in Sabah. And it's a really, really interesting place. It's called Kinabalu in Sabah. Uh, I went there. We had crowds of 2,000, 3,000. I'll tell you a really funny story in a minute. And my first season, we ended up getting crowds of 30,000. We got to the final in the Malaysia Cup at Bukit Jalil in Malaysia, playing a team from Patalin Jaya, division below. And it was an amazing experience. 95,000 people packed in the stadium. It's the Malaysia Cup final. It's their biggest showcase, uh, showcase spectacle. And we got beat. We got hammered 3-0. And we ended up with nine men. And so I'm like, you know, walking the streets of Kuala Lumpur at five o'clock in the morning thinking, what the fuck, what happened there? <laughs> Racking my brain. So we cut a long story short, goes back to Kota Kinabalu and I'm in this little cafe one day having a cup of tea. So I'm sat there and this is an old Chinese fellow looked across and he went, hello, Peter, how are you? He said, job well done. He said, I thought you did extremely well taking the lads to the final. I said, no, nah, I thought we could have won it. Really felt we could have won it. He said, no, 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 your, semi, your, fa- your semi-final was your final, going to Parak and turning them over in two legs. Parak's a big team on Peninsula Malaysia. I said, no, no, I honestly thought we could have won it. He says, you don't understand he went. You couldn't win it. And you get that, that fight or flight fear, that feeling come over you, that cold feeling. I thought, how do you mean we couldn't win it? Of course we could. He went, no, you couldn't because all your management's money were on the opposition. Oh, no. Oh, you're joking. Jeez. Yeah. And then really? it was, and I realised then would been done over, would been would been match fixing, and I, that was like, you know, you know, a sort of starry-eyed lad from Halifax, welcome to Asian football, and it was my introduction to what was going on, and the get wow. the get, and there's one thing I learned in Asian football: doesn't matter where you are, Singapore, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, you don't win anything, you buy it. Wow. wow! Wow! That's amazing. That's, that must that's, uh, that must have been so disheartening to think that there was players and management that you had trusted so much and done such a great job for had then sort of done that behind your back, so to speak. Well, what you got to take into consideration is that that's how they pay bonuses, they pay wages, etc. They do it because it's they bet on the games. And I always remember once I were in Indonesia and I'm in a place called Bolomongondo. Never forget it. And um, you know, there's me jumping up and down, ranting and raving at the referee, and I learn to keep quiet, keep your mouth shut. And I looked around, and my team manager at the time was an administrative manager, sat there on the bench having a fag, and he's looking as cool as they come, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? Afterwards, I'm talking to the press, and I said, I think it's disgraceful. You know, there's no way we, that should have been allowed. And their team manager came to me. He was slash coach, and he said, Peter, your president and our president have already had an agreement. 
you win your own game, we win our own game. So wow. I just thought, yeah. and that's, you know, I'm not going to say that happens every week. It doesn't. But it, it really was, it, it's a scourge on Asian football of actually how things operate. And uh, I learned to keep my mouth shut, but it, I could tell you a thousand stories about what, what's gone on and what's happened. And um, I, I sort of distanced myself far, as far from it as I possibly could. It disgusted me, it made me sick, but it can make or break you. Mm-hmm. Um, Malaysia is bad for it and Indonesia. Well, I never knew that. I mean, you know, not alien to match fixing because you, you see the odd report in the papers or on social media. And I think because you, you're seeing it on social media or, or seeing it in a rag, you, you just it doesn't feel like reality. So whilst you kind of accept in the back of your mind that it does exist, it, to actually be there and hear it and experience it, that must be so surreal. And and you must have, well, you must have fell out, fell out of love with Asian football because from a coaching perspective, how are you ever going to progress when progression is taken out of your hands by money going on? How the results going to end? Well, I, th- I think sometimes you've got to put it in context as well. I had, I had three kids in private schooling in uh, in, in Malaysia and uh, they were living hey, in Kuala Lumpur. Hey, yeah. just, just for a minute there, I thought you was going to say, to put it into perspective, I had three winners. <laughs> yeah, at centre one. <laughs> that's that's how you can afford the private education. Believe me, believe me, kill me. No, I had my kids. I had my kids in the school in uh, in Kuala Lumpur, and I travelled around. So we used Kuala Lumpur as a hub, as a base, and uh, it just got to the stage where, from you know, working in Malaysian football. And I ended up coming back to Malaysian football from Indonesian football. I'd spent a bit of time in Myanmar as well, which is quite an interesting story. I'll come back to that. And uh, but I was working in um, I was working in Indonesian football. I had an opportunity to go to a coach a team called Kelantan, which is a very very conservative Islamic state. Uh, quite parochial people and very proud. And did not, I took them to the final for the first time in 38 years. And um, again, you just I just you can't, you know, you lose a game on penalties. And um, I, I, I would taken this team who were a, a so-called better team than us to the to a final. Again, 90,000 people is the FA Cup final. There's another final there. And I get to the penalty shootout and I says to the lads, right, OK, I really fancied us. Who wants to take penalties? All the senior lads shied away, didn't fancy it. So straight away, that told me a story. Uh, and we ended up losing the game on penalties. And... I, I ended up leaving that club again on the basis of what was what was going on behind the scenes. And you just can't get away from it in that part of the world. And you've got to be thick-skinned. And I had kids in, uh, in, in a school in Kuala Lumpur and I had to look after them. And it weren't until I moved to Myanmar where in 2009-10 that I actually shifted my children back to, uh, to where I'm living now in West Yorkshire. And I went and carried on my sort of Phileas Fog tag. <laughs> mm, yeah, absolutely. So you're now in charge of Liberia, um, the football team. That is not the nation. That would be a tough gig, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> what is yeah. that like? What, I mean, what, what, what is it like on a daily basis? And what are your ambitions within that role? Well, sort of just taking you back. It's no different from when I went to Botswana as national team coach. I'd left Malaysia. Fed up again of the, the, the big scene there, um, which happened where two lads was, they were selling games again, and I just walked, I managed to get out and I won my case. 
And I ended up, I thought, well, I, don't, I said to my wife, I don't fancy going back to Asia anymore. I've had enough of it. And I got a phone call out of the blue to go to work as a technical director in the Botswana FA in Southern Africa. And I'd never, I didn't even know where Botswana was. Um, and I turned it down and then they came back to me and offered the national team job. And it was the start of my sort of African adventure uh, where I went for an interview and I, I delivered a presentation and I told them, this is how I work. This is what I believe in my sort of philosophy and that, et cetera. And they said, well, if we offered the job, when could you start? And I said, well, I'll go on for a couple of weeks and I'll have a chat with my wife and I'll, I'll come back with an answer. He said, no, you don't understand. If we offer the job, could you start now, today? And I never, <laughs> I, I never went home for six months. Oh, really? And I had no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We ended up staying, but we did brilliant. We got to 86, 87 in FIFA rankings. We got to a couple of semi-finals, finals in local. Uh, Botswana is not a big footballing country, but it's a beautiful country with beautiful, wonderful people. And um, to get sometimes you, you sometimes got to be be careful what you you know what you wish for in life, and you know judging things by winning trophies is not sometimes a good gauge of actually your sort of achievements and. We ended up, I did, I did three and a half years there. And then a uh, new president came in, wanted to do his own thing. And then I ended up going to South Africa and uh, I didn't like it at all. And I lasted two games. I couldn't work with the people who were running the club. It was, again, things were going on and I didn't, I didn't agree with it. I'm a quite a moral, moral, you know, moralistic person when it comes down to football. And, um, and then... I then got Ed Dunford for this job. I had a two, six months sort of more coach education side of things, doing things in, in Asia, back in Jayapura, out towards Papua New Guinea, and then in Medan, in not far from where the tsunami was. And then I um, I ended up coming to Liberia. I got Ed Dunford for this job. Supposed to take the Sierra Leone job and ended up taking this job. So, uh, but great people. Liberians are amazing, amazing people. And they've got a good work ethic. And they've just what you've got to take into consideration is because of the war, they've lost two generations of development, and that's really set them back. Mm. Mm. I mean, you speak of great Liberians. Obviously, the most famous one is George Weah. Um, have you have you had much to do with him since you've been in post? I just live across the road from him. Really? You had a kick around earlier. <laughs> I, actually, I actually live in his compound. There's a football pitch and a basketball pitch outside, and uh, he's actually a very humble guy. He's a nice chap, very nice guy, and uh, I've met him numerous times. Had a bit of lunch with him, and um, he's a nice chap. I think he's got fond memories of his of his English English experience. Uh, and uh, I was remembering coming up to me the first time. He looked at me, and went, "All right, Mike." I looked at him and I went, hello, <laughs> oh, Mr. President. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a nice guy. He's, 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 a, he's got, obviously, a very, very tough job, but loves his football, uh, as you would. He weren't a bad player himself, was he? Absolutely. I do see him uh, quite often in, in this compound where I live. I live in a, a private compound, which is his. And... Um, it's safe. It's a little bit out of town, uh, but I just, yeah, I just get on with, get on doing what I do, and you know, I think sometimes, I sometimes ask myself, you know, it feels like I'm going through life doing humanitarian work. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's jobs, you know, where you, you sort of chase, and I've, I've stopped chasing jobs where you, you can earn a, a bigger, you know, a bigger salary if it comes 
comes, it comes great. If it don't, I like I like doing things where I get a kick out of trying to inspire and educate and help young players, give them a leg up in life. Um, sometimes we don't really, you know, appreciate what we've got, and sometimes we have to sort of maybe have a little bit of a reality check and be thankful for small mercies. And I'm one of them coaches who I've done all my licences, I've had a great experience. I I worked in I worked in the game at the time to earn a lot of money. I didn't. But would I go back and change it? No, I wouldn't. I loved my time playing for clubs like West Ham, West Brom, etc. I'm, I'm a true football person, and, I, and that, I try to bring that across in my coaching as well. Absolutely, and good for you, mate. Um, it's got to be a book in you somewhere, Peter, isn't there, one day? That's exactly I, what I was thinking. I, I think really? Really? Okay, asking me, do you know, I went to work for this guy. I'll tell you a quick story. I, went, I, went, I got asked to take a job in Burma, pre-democracy. Wow. Team called yeah, team called Yangon United. There's a guy who's on United Nations sanctions list called Utezar. Google him, read him up on him. And I went, guy around me, he said, Pete, do you fancy this job? I was just leaving the job in Malaysia because I'd had enough of what was going on. And I went, no, I'm not interested. I don't fancy it. He went, no. I said, I said, where's Myanmar? He told me where it was. And then I thought, it came back to me and he, he pestered me. And he, he said, come on, take this job. I don't just go it for six months. So I thought, all right, I'll do it. So I went there and I met this guy. And on first day, after two days, I went to see him and said, sorry, this is not really what I was cut out for. I said, I, I want to be honest with you. I'd rather give you the money back and move on. He went, no, no, no. He said, I brought you here to build this club, build a club, not the team. And I went, I, 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 can't, I can't do that. I said, in two years, he went, oh, you can do it. I, I have lots of money. So I looked at him and I thought, he can't be serious. Well, he's the wealthiest businessman in the whole of Yangon. It was pre-democracy. And... There were no cars on the street. It was it was quite a strange, really weird, quirky environment. And this guy put his money where his mouth was. He built a football club, training ground, ripped things apart. And it just made me realise he was a guy who was like part of the arms dealing with the Russians and the opium, etc., etc. Wow. And I got called by the, by the uh, British Embassy and a guy called Andrew Hearn, who was the uh, high commissioner he said Peter do you realise who you're working for I went uh, I didn't but I do now <laughs> and, uh, I, said, I said a few things out of turn and I, I, I didn't really last very long well I lasted a year but, but an amazing amazing guy amazing group of people and it just goes to show sometimes don't judge a book by its cover yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, what Dave says right about the, about the book. I mean, I'm actually watching a Netflix series on Carlos Tevez, his um, life and his career and so on. I think there's time for a Butler Netflix uh, series, to be honest <laughs> with you. The amount of stuff mm. you've gone through, both on and off the pitch, it was amazing. Well, a guy rang me up and he said to me, he goes, Peter, do you fancy writing a book? He said, we could call it From Booth Town to Burma, because that's where I'm from. <laughs> I said, I said listen, I said, I'd like to think I've got about another 10, 15 years coaching in me. I said, I, uh, I want to carry on coaching. If I wrote a book, it'd be so, it'd be, it'd be so much in it. I said, I'm, uh, I'd never be able to work ever again. So uh, I've, I've been watching it back forevermore. It's, it's okay walking down, walking down the barking road, watching your back. But I mean, it's a little bit different when you're in Liberia. <laughs> yeah. don't, fancy being washed, don't fancy being washed up on ocean. <laughs> oh it's so true yeah. fascinating what a fascinating story and, and I'll tell you what Pete honestly I know X is thinking the same and, and a hell of a lot of people listening to this podcast will be thinking the same if you do release a book I'll tell you mate we'd, we'd be all over there what one oh, hell of a story yeah. you've got 
You really have. Um, let's just jump back to West Ham for a minute. I know you said you haven't been back, but have the club ever invited you to take place with any events or, or any special occasions or anything like that? Jonah, Jonah rang me up a couple of times, asked me if I were interested in doing like, they must have a lounge there where they pay ex-players to come back and that. And, they do. Uh, they do. And it's not my scene. It's not my scene. I'd, I'd, no. if, I, if I went back there, I'd go back anonymously or with a couple of lads and a few mates from South End, um, Danny Hodgson and the lads, and I'd, I'd go. They've got season tickets and they always invite me if I want to go. But um, I, I never really... I've, I've, I'm always coaching. I'm always travelling or working, and I'm either here, there, or everywhere. And I bump into quite a few sort of West Ham fans along the way, and I keep my mouth shut. I don't tell people what I did or what what I do. Um, I just get on with my life, and um, I've never been invited back. Uh, I don't expect to be invited back by is it uh, is it GSB? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I had so, so many fond memories of of Upton Park. It was, you know, and met some amazing, amazing people. And those memories will live with me forever. And um, I don't, I, I think if I went back and experienced that London Stadium, yeah, I think I'd be a little bit disappointed. Uh, mm. Everybody I speak to says exactly the same things that don't think where it was it is now. It's it's not. It's completely different, and the club has changed to an extent where it doesn't have that same feel anymore. So I'm just going on what friends of mine, you know, people have passed up the, the season tickets and have decided. I'm, I've had friends who would families had season tickets for like 30, 40 years at Upton Park and have never never renewed them when they went to the London Stadium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's very, very true. I mean we could do a whole show on that as well. It, the change it has really changed the identity, and as you say, it might be better off remembering the old times as to trying to change with the new. Because like you say, there's a lot of people that just aren't happy at all. Um, how, how would you like? So last question here: How would you like to be remembered by the West Ham fans? I mean, the reason we got you on this show is because the last podcast that Dave and I did together, we we did our one to eleven of most underrated players. Uh, you made the midfield and then Dave asked the question who is the most underrated player and we discussed back and forth a few players Tim Breaker was one there was a few others thrown in um, and we concluded that it was you and that, and that we feel that your time at the club was you know really massive in our history and perhaps one that isn't spoke about as much um, how, how would you like to be remembered by the fans? I think in many respects just a, a, I was just like a humble lad from Halifax who I just lived the dream, you know, you see there's no different to any kid living in a council estate, dream to becoming a professional footballer and, you know, and, and live that dream and, you know, okay, I never played for Leeds, but I, I played for West Ham and that, that was quite special to me because until you, pl- until you pull on that shirt, that claret and blue doesn't really matter whether you played 70 games or 700 games. Um, it, it's quite a, a poignant sort of, um, you know, feeling it's an, it's an amazing experience to play for those supporters, and especially when you go to places like West Brom in an FA Cup game, and there's 10,000 West Ham fans there, and you think, wow, mm. you know, that was, you know, I was so appreciative of actually, you know, what I achieved in a in a in a short space of time, and uh, the the amazing characters and the people that I met who became friends for life, and 
I just, you know, just a, I'm just a humble lad from West Yorkshire who, who basically, you know, achieved his dream of, you know, playing for a, a club uh, in the top flight. And if West Ham it was, and I'm very, very proud to, to have played for him. Mm. Absolutely. Well said, mate. Well said. Well, there was a lot of excitement from our followers when we announced that you were coming on the show. Um, lots of positive, nice comments as well. And there were also uh, a number of questions. So we've, we've picked a handful to ask you now. Me and X are going to alternate them and X is going to kick us off. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try to. You, you did that quicker than I thought you would. <laughs> go on, kick on. <laughs> you have to give me a second. Right, here we go. Right, I'm ready now. Sorry about this. Right. Okay. Um, first question is from at Second Modern. And he said, um, Peter, what Euro- European clubs have invested well in Africa? And has there been any contact um, from West Ham about kind of scouting in the region? I think a lot of it depends on obviously the migration situation because of like work permit issues, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, West Africa, Southern Africa, no, forget, uh, for me, you're not going to get players from there. Um, and that history tells you the hotbed is places like Burkina Faso, Senegal, um, you know, um, Ghana, Nigeria. You've got some wonderful players coming out of those regions. West African football is the hotbed and, uh, I um, you, you do get a lot of, um, especially the French, the French connection, the French side of things. Um, they invest a lot of time and money um, into West Africa. Manchester City had a, had a link up with the club in Ghana, uh, academy in Ghana called Right to Dream, and but they've never had any kids through, and they won't get any through because, um, if truth be known, you're talking about you know, developing players for a different market for kids to step up to that level. Um, into the Premier League straight away ain't going to happen. The man is, you know, the Mohamed Salahs, they, they go through the process and, you know, I've, I've done Egypt, I've done Tunisia and Algeria, Morocco and Nigeria, I've done all that, I've been to all those places. Got some very, very simple, humble programmes going on there, but do they produce players? Yes, they do. Mm. Uh, this one's coming from at West underscore Ham for Life. What are your thoughts on VAR? Should it be scrapped? Uh, just going back to that, West Ham never, ever, ever approached me anyway. They probably don't. I mean, GSB probably don't even know I exist, even though I used to be a roommate of Paul Pescalido when they were but at West Ham. Did Trump. you really? Really? Yeah, wow. we were teammates, yeah. I remember once. I remember once he'd won a, he'd won the award at West Brom, and she scolded him at the table. I'll never forget it. And I thought, oh, won't wonder to be married to her. Uh, <laughs> he probably doesn't either. Probably ain't got yeah. much fucking choice. He was a nice lad, Pesh. I felt sorry for him. Yeah, good, good player, Pesky Solido. Good finisher. Yeah, yeah, he did well. Yeah, nice, nice guy. Yeah, you know. <laughs> sorry, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not going to be invited back now, mate. That's for sure. <laughs> she's, 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 a, she's a lovely lady. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to go back to that question, what are your thoughts on VAR? I think it's got a place in the game, but it's like what's really interesting. I'm a big rugby league fan. My son plays professional rugby league. He's at Huddersfield Giants, um, um, and he, um, he basically, I don't think, I don't think they've actually adopted it in a manner it's too long-winded in rugby league it's, it's a little bit more technical etc cetera, etc cetera. but um i just think you know the offside by a heel or, a, or if you've got a big nose you know it's it's just it's just ridiculous and there is a place in the game for it i do you know um 
decisions regarding goals. Are they over the line or they're not over the line? Yeah, but I just think the offsides have got it wrong. I personally feel they should give the benefit of the doubt to the striker, not the defensive player. I just think they've taken it literally and they've just taken it too far. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. We spoke about that a lot on the show. And, the, and it is the offsides for me that are the real problem because especially when I have to bring up all those lines and it's like literally millimetres. I mean, that's not going to affect whether a goal scored or not, is it? And it just seems a bit silly, really, for me at the moment. No, I totally agree. And so, th- so this is from Kevin underscore and he said, why, oh, why did you choose to leave us one week after I had Butler printed on the back of my shirt? Um, and he said, <laughs> you, were, you, were part, you were part of a team with a lot of big personalities. What is the, your funniest memory of your time at West Ham? Ah, oh, there's loads. I mean, I apologise for leaving when I did. I'll have to reimburse you. No, I, obviously, <laughs> obviously, I've explained that reason why. There's no, you know, no, I could do about it. You know, so that's life. Uh no, I, I mean, probably the funniest one was when we went to Cheltenham Racecourse and uh, Ian Bishop and Lee Chapman there, he was, you know, uh, thought he knew every single champagne or glass of wine in the book and we had, te- you know, we had him tasting everyone he got wrong. <laughs> he, he, had to, he had to drink a glass of champagne and he ended up getting rotten, rotten drunk, as we all did. And, and sadly... <laughs> Sadly, we all got thrown out of Martin Pipe's tent. We got asked to leave. So, <laughs> Harry and Bill weren't, weren't, in, weren't best impressed. So, uh, no, no, from a football point of view, I, I, probably my famous memory was actually, you know, uh, probably beating Arsenal under lights at Upton Park. Uh, and a lot of people tend to forget that game. It was quite an amazing game. I think Trevor, Trevor Morley had scored. And we didn't just beat them, we hammered them. And we played ever so well that night. And... Uh, I always remember uh, Ian Wright saying to me, we had a bit of a scuffle on pitch and he looked at me and he turned around and, and I said something to him. And he, he turned around to me and went, he said, who the fucking hell do you think you are? I said, get back to the lower leagues where you do along where you belong. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I looked at him and I thought, yeah, I looked at him and I thought, I said, all right, cheers. <laughs> and ran off. Like, but it was just... Um, that was an amazing night when we beat them up to that that feeling of winning a big game under lights is quite special. Yeah, absolutely. I miss those nights under the lights, that's for sure, as every West Ham fan does. Uh, this is from at Jarks M. Who does he think is the most underrated West Ham player ever? Which is an interesting question on the back of the podcast we done last week, where of course we named you as our opinion on the most underrated player. But asking the man himself, based on your time at West Ham, what would your answer be? Well, you could you could name many like Matty Holmes, uh, you know, uh, Kevin Keane would be up there without a doubt. Ke- Kev was just a you know a, re- a really smart footballer, probably one of the, the best the players who I thought was who didn't really get the recognition he deserved was Trevor Morley. Yeah. You know, he used to, you know, Trevor used to get smashed around and got his fair share of goals, and you know a fantastic lad, really really good guy. Uh, a lot of time for him, um, but there's there's many, you know. I mean, I would say Alvin was probably one of the best players I ever played with. Um, you know, it was difficult for Gailey at the time because Alvin and Potsy had struck up a really good sort of uh, you know partnership. But um, Tim Tim falls into that category. Good player, really nice guy, humble chap, uh, Tim Breaker. So yeah, it's a difficult one, but there are just a few names I would throw in the mix. 
Well, it's funny mm. because the names that you threw into the mix there were pretty much the ones we said, weren't they, David? We had Tim Baker, we had Trevor Morley as our striker. So, uh, yeah, it's good to see that we're kind of on the sort of same lines there. Um, this this question comes from uh, at one Paul seventy seven, and I think you've talked about it a little bit earlier on. But the question is: the penultimate game in the ninety two ninety three promotion season was Swindon away. How big was that game in your mind? Uh, it, it lived long in the memory. I mean, you know, they had Glenn Oddle and um, you know John Monker, a lot of lads who who, who really they had a good footballing team. Uh, um, it, it, it put a good a good squad of players together, you know. Obviously, the late John Gorman as well. But I I just felt it was one of those games where it was it was shit a bust, you know. Uh, and we had to like we had to pull out a performance that day, and and we did. I think Kenny scored a screamer, didn't it? Kenny 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 Brown. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, it was just one of those days where you sort of live long in the memory. Huge following as always. Uh, I, I, I think sometimes a friend of mine, he's a big West Ham fan, said to me, "When you probably don't realise how important that season was to West Ham. It was probably like the make the makings of actually us kicking on and like re-establishing ourselves again as a club, or you know being in obscurity for a number of years playing in the Championship. Because remember, the following season was was the the first Premier League uh, fixture." Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was absolutely crucial. And, and I think, like you said, on the back of what had been disastrous with the bondholder scheme and various sort of unhappiness, that that season was so important. Had we not gone up, who knows where we would have been in future years and going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a game which lives long in the memory. And um, and there is quite a few games, you know, where you look back and you, you we went to places like Bristol, going to places like Bristol Rovers, where you'd never think would be, you know, you, West Ham we were playing there, we we're playing at the old Bristol Rovers ground as well, and um, and just grinding results out, and it sort of epitomised we we had a, a bit of a, a bit of steeliness to us as well. West Ham's always been renowned for playing really good, attractive, open football. Um, maybe over the years they've 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 they've, they've lost that. I don't know. Um, I've watched them numerous times, and it's, it's a result I always look out for. And when I, they're on TV, I always, I always make sure I, I watch. You know, I um, and you know, it sort of saddens me to see him, you know, being in a. So I mean, sadly, with what's going on in the world, you know, we, we've seen unprecedented times. But um, I just hope they don't get relegated, and you know, maybe it might be a blessing. I don't know if they stop the league. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's coming from at supersonic underscore Mark. I think you've covered this, Pete, to be honest with you. But just um, just for clarity, he's asking, was Peter invited to attend the last game at the Bowling? And I'm guessing from what you've said, you wasn't. But categorically, can you confirm that you wasn't? No, I wasn't. I wasn't, no. Would you, would you like to have gone there? I know it's not your scene, but given the occasion and the fact that it was the last night at the Bowling, would you have been tempted? Uh, probably. I would have done, but... I'm, I'm a bit of a really want, to be fair. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not really want to sort of go begging and scraping. I've sort of, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of plough your own furrow in life. Don't you get on with it? And uh, mm. I, um, yes, yeah, I've, you know, I look back. It was a great memory. I like to remember for what it was. And you know, it's like the old saying. You know, it's, it's all right looking back, but don't look back and stare. Yeah. yeah. It's very disappointing to hear that though, because on that last day, I think 
there was players there that had barely done anything for the club and that, that had been invited. And obviously, we've already talked about the significance of your time at the club. So that is actually quite disappointing to hear the club um, didn't invite you, to be honest with you. And I'm sure I speak but on the behalf of many West Ham fans when I say that. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, the last question, I think it's just a reflection on his sort of favourite moment of you at West Ham, but it's come from uh, at Jimmy Goldsmith, and he said, um, can we ask you about you battering Vinnie Jones for 90 minutes? Sadly, it was the days before YouTube was all up and running, but I remember cheering every single tackle, and you were very underrated in my book. Uh, that, were at, that, that game was actually at Crystal Palace. Yeah. It was, it was at Sellers Park, and... Uh, yeah, we, you know, you know what you're going to get with Vinnie Jones. Uh, he's actually a nice guy, daft crazy as it sounds. He's actually, yeah. you, know, you know, deep down, you know, you scrape away a little bit of the surface. He's actually a very, very nice guy. And a smart, a smart footballer than you thought. You, you, a lot of people give him credit for. But yeah, we, we got amongst him and uh, got in his face. I think he's the type of guy, Vinnie, that when you played against him, uh, if you give him any encouragement or you, you showed any sort of like frailty, um, he would uh, he'd take advantage of that. And uh, maybe I did the dirty work and, and it gave Bish the platform to sort of showcase, you know, the qualities which he had. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of, I like to think that day I played my part and I think there's a great picture. I always remember there's a picture and he's gone through me and he had a, had a scratch up my back, down my ass. What I mean, as as, mm-hmm. as long as my leg. And I always remember like waking up next morning thinking, "Fucking hell!" It was like, but yeah, it was great. <laughs> it it was a great day. It was a great day, and uh, it was a great, it was a really good result because Wimbledon were always very, very difficult to play against. Yeah, Pete, it's been great having you on. It really has. Thanks for talking to us, mate. No, no, I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, and uh, I'll uh, I'll look out for your podcast. I've uh, I sometimes don't always check my sort of Twitter account, but uh, I've noticed really there's been a lot of like interest from West Ham fans, which is great because, you know, they're always in my thoughts. It's a club which is very, very special to me. And uh, I, uh, you know, I really do wish them well moving forwards. And, uh, you know, especially what's going on at the moment, you know, it's just uh, just very difficult times, isn't it, for everybody? It certainly is, mate. And, and on behalf of every West Ham fan, we wish you the very best of luck for the future, pal. And I'm sure you've picked up a few Liberia fans by doing this podcast as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Liberians are everywhere, believe me. Great people, really, really nice. Hey, maybe West Ham's, you know what I mean, accumulated a few Liberian supporters tonight, you never know. Yeah, well, I'll be looking out for their results now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. All right, but, All right, but listen. Good luck to you, mate. Good luck to you. And um, and as always, thanks to you at home for listening and giving us your questions. Stay safe. And until next week, come on your irons. Bundling home and car insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbours are probably already doing it. But who? They may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of 
all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.